Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. On this podcast, I have a very special guest who's going to be joining us for a lively conversation. And so before we actually announce what our topic is, I want to just introduce our guest. And so I have with us today Caleb Neal, and I'm going to let Caleb Neal explain who he is and how we know each other and a little bit about himself so that you guys as listeners can get to know Caleb. So Caleb, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Um... So I'm actually one of Sean's uh, former youth in the in the youth group that he uh, worked with years ago. Um, I think we've known each other for about 15 plus years now, um, and it's been real exciting um, just over the years getting to talk to Sean and and include him in my spiritual growth. Um, I, I was uh, after high school, I did a couple years of college, went into the military for about six years, uh, and then after that pursued. Uh, a calling out to Louisville, Kentucky to uh, pursue education to prepare for ministry. I just finished up my undergraduate work in December, and I'm starting full-time on Monday at the seminary out here in Louisville. And what seminary is that? That is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The Southern Baptist. Where, yes, I got my doctorate from there, and, and I've known Caleb since he actually was in, I think he was in sixth grade when I came to the church in Colorado Springs, and so I've got to see Caleb grow up and got to counsel him many times on Wednesday nights after youth group, and uh, I actually uh, got to perform the wedding with him and his beautiful wife, Laura, and got to um, just see him grow up to be a fine young man and a great theologian, and so I'm really excited to have Caleb on the show today. Caleb, what are you going to be studying at Southern and what's your what's your long-term plans for ministry? Well, I'm going to be studying to uh, be a senior pastor. That's what I came out here for. So um, whether or not that's what the Lord has for me or if he wants me in a, a supportive associate pastoral role in the future, I'm open to that. Um, but I'll be doing the MDiv. The, uh, it's, it's actually called the Advanced uh, Masters of Divinity for Boyce Alumnus. Um, so I'm going to be at the School of Theology. So I'll be able to uh, lament with Sean over uh, the difficulty of learning Greek and Hebrew more and more in depth, or rather he'll be able to lament with me since he's gone before me <laughs> in that area. Uh, but it's uh, it's uh, going to be exciting. It's going to be busy, um, taking a lot of language classes, classes sometimes side by side. And uh, yeah, I'm just real excited to start up there. One of the funny things about Caleb is that he he has a really good memory, and so like twenty years after I said something, maybe on a Wednesday night teaching as a youth group, he'll be like remember on that night when you taught that, and he'll like give it verbatim. I'm like I have no idea what I taught in 1998 uh, on a Wednesday night, but but Caleb seems to remember almost everything that I taught, and so I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Caleb, but I find that to be pretty funny at times. Uh, the biggest thing I remember is when you first started, um, really diving into how to like share our faith and, uh, into proper theology in the youth group and, um, just your, through your faithfulness, seeing how much, uh, people grew. And there, there are some, there are some difficult nights for me when you were challenging some of my beliefs, uh, about, about the Bible and about God. And, uh, I remember we had some, some long conversations after a uh, youth group <laughs> sometimes without, with me struggling, like, Sean, how can you believe these things? And, and you, uh, setting the record straight <laughs> and setting me did straight. I, did I ever indoctrinate you or what did I tell you? Uh, you always challenged me to, to go to the scripture. Um, you, you said that if you could convince me of something, somebody else could come along and convince me of something else. So you always sought to, to, push me towards uh, submitting to the Bible and to submitting to God's word. Um, and that's something I still try to do today um, as best I can. It's, it's easy sometimes to get caught up with uh, mentors, whether they're people we listen to on podcasts or, or sermons or even in our uh, churches to uh, allow that, that following. I mean, and that's something that Paul addressed in his letters, you know, some people saying, I follow Paul, I, I follow Jesus. Um, or I follow, I think Apollos was the other one that he, he mentions. Um, and he just reminds them, you know, that, uh, um, of the importance of, of embracing, you know, scripture as the, uh, maybe I'm having that, that 
I'm, I'm getting my quotes mixed up, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Hold, holding fast to the scripture is our ultimate authority yeah. and yeah. not, not to the, our favorite um, celebrity pastor or whatever they may say. So, well, today's topic is going to be on The Shack. Uh, the book by William Paul Young was a New York Times bestseller. It came back out back in 2008. Um, back then, I read the book because it was very popular, and we had people in our church that were reading it, and people were asking me what, what I thought about it. And so actually, um, in March of 2009, I wrote a um, review um, to put everything down in, in writing of what I thought about the book. And the reason it's timely is because um, the very first weekend in March, uh, there's going to be the Shaq movie coming out. Uh, I know it's taken a long time for it to be made into a movie, but we're talking about a, a blockbuster-type cast. Um, Sam Worthington plays the main character, and he's famous for being um, the lead character in the Avatar movie. Um, Octavia Spencer plays Papa. Uh, she was in The Help and other movies. It's got a soundtrack by uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, and it, it, it's got pretty much a a A-list a, a type cast for this movie. And so as the movie comes out and as people go to it and interact with it, um, we thought it would be timely to interact with the book at this point, um, not necessarily the movie, but the book that influenced the movie, and just talk about the theology behind it um, and, and some different issues with that. And so the story centers around a, uh, a dad uh, named Mac. Uh, they're out in the woods on a camping trip. His six-year-old daughter gets abducted. Uh, she's murdered by a serial killer in the Oregon wilderness. Uh, Mac struggles with this uh, tragedy. Um, he doesn't have a very close relationship with God. He kind of grew up in an abusive family, uh, kind of a very legalistic family. Um, his wife is a believer named Nan. Uh, she doesn't call God God. She calls God Papa. And uh, she, she's kind of the spiritual anchor in the family. And then after three years after his daughter dies, um, Mac gets this mysterious letter in the mail that invites him to go back to the shack in the wilderness where they found um, his daughter Missy's bloodstained dress. And so he loads up in his Jeep and he goes back there. And most of the book is his interaction in the shack, really with all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so it gets to be this weird allegory trying to define um, issues of dealing with evil and suffering and how God uh, comforts. And so, um, Caleb, give me some of your initial opinions on the book and maybe start with um, what were the positives of the book? We'll be generous and talk about some positives. Well, I think the, the biggest positive um, that I took away from the book was uh, the heart that uh, William Young comes to. Uh, trying to help people who have uh, had the loss of a child or any other major loss. Um, there are some other things that they, they talk about in the book uh, through his conversations with, uh, with God um, and just trying to help people with grief. Um, I, I think that he does come with the right heart. I don't think that he's intentionally being subversive in, in, in his beliefs. And I tried to read the book and uh, when I reread it, uh, uh, for our discussion, I tried to keep that in mind that I don't think he's being malicious in any way. And, and I would even go far as to say that I do think that he is a believer from what little um, I've seen. I don't have reason to think that he is uh, abandoning the faith or, or trying to uh, uh, start a cult or anything like that. Um, I also think that he does a, he does a good job uh, just storytelling. It, it is uh, hard to put down uh, from a literary perspective. Um, and I do think that his desire to break our preconceived notions holistically about God um, at, at a foundational level is good. I think how he goes about it um, is erroneous. I think it, it, if taken to logical conclusions, it causes some problems, uh, causes some confusions, um, especially in this day and age with, uh, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, when it comes to the gender aspect, but with the um, just the assault on on gender by the um, far left in our culture, um, I think I think he just has some dangerous and, and slippery uh, methods, if you will. Well, let me let me interact with two things that you said. Number one, 
I do agree with you that it was a masterfully written book as far as just a, just as an author. He was a very good author, engaging, like you said. I think that was one of the, the um, strengths of the book was that it really did draw you into the story. Uh, so I think that was one of its strengths, why it was so popular. Uh, the second thing I want to interact with you is I, I question whether he's a believer. Now, I, I don't want to judge somebody's salvation, but I've heard some interviews with him post Shack, where he denies penal substitutionary atonement, and he's a universalist. And so um, we can debate that issue as far as his theology outside of the book. Um, I don't necessarily want to do that because I want to stick with his statements in the book. Yeah, and I'll just say that um, I'm, I'm basing that on my limited interaction with the book. And when I initially read it uh, eight years ago, I think, when it first came out, when it was uh, really big on the scene... Um, I, I never had any, any ill givings, uh, to him in that regard, but if he's come out and said further things, I think that that is, um, I'd be willing to change my position on that. Obviously. I do want to share a conversation I had with, um, Art Azurdia. I know many of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Azurdia at Trinity Church, Portland, uh, he and I were spending some time together when he came out to Colorado to do a conference and we started talking about the shack and, um, the, the professor who shares an office next to um, Art Azurdia at um, Western Seminary in Portland um, was in a Bible study with Paul Young, or the, the writer of The Shack, and he got to see a preview copy of um, like a manuscript preview before it was sent to Sondervan. And what this professor told Art Azurdia was that it was so radically um, out there that Basically, Zondervan required him to cut about three-fourths of what he had and rewrite it because Zondervan felt like it would be too radical to publish under a, um, a, a Christian bookseller. So I, I'd, obviously, we haven't seen that manuscript, and that comes secondhand uh, through, through somebody I respect. But um, what we're left with is the final product. And so that's what we want to interact with is what was published and what was written. And since it's out there in the public domain, maybe, Caleb, you may want to inter- um, address the issue of um, you know, how we interact with this book, the nature of the book as an allegory, and, and, and maybe address some issues related to that theme. Right. Well, I, th- I saw a lot of people getting bent out of shape with the critics of the book uh, because they thought that uh, they were being uncharitable. And I think, I think there may be some truth to that, um, especially to those of us who are more uh, reformed in our theology. Um, we can sometimes in our uh, desire and pursuit to be precise with uh, our theology, which is good. Sometimes we um, speak in ways that are, are um, maybe a little bit more unloving than they should be, uh, a little bit harsher. Um, but at the same time, simply not being a, a, a theologian, like a proper theologian at a, at a, at a church or a seminary, um, I don't think William Young is a pastor. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that one. But that those not having those bona fides um, doesn't absolve ideas that you put into the public forum from being uh, criticized and being panned. I mean, if this this would be different if it was a personal blog that he was writing to where he's genuinely trying to work through some difficult um, difficult ideas. Um, I think our interaction would be much more charitable. I think we would be much more. Um, giving. But I think when it comes to uh, somebody who's who's publishing a book, they're getting paid to publish a book, they're functionally putting themselves in a teaching position, uh, it needs to be scrutinized. And that goes for anyone. I, I, and that goes for, for people that we consider heroes of the faith. Uh, I, I know that there are big names out there who have been critiqued in some of their books before. And, and that's how we as Christians hold each other accountable. So it's not a bad thing. In regards to it being uh, uh, a fictional work or an allegory. I heard some people uh, try to compare it to uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, the copy that I have, I think it's a first edition. Uh, somebody mentions that it's going to be like the, this generation's Pilgrim Progress. Uh, some people tried to compare him to Lewis, uh, and uh, you, so, while he's well less known, uh, the one of the early Christians, uh, Boethius, who wrote. Uh, a, a book called Constellation of Philosophy. All these men used allegories and metaphors to prove a point, but where Young stands really unique in this area is really putting words into into God's mouth and into all three persons of the Trinity. 
um, to where the other ones sought to, they seem to seek to really uh, avoid doing that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And so what we what we want to do is address, there's a lot of things we can address. We've kind of put this under six big headings or maybe six major problems that we have with the book. Um, and so let's just start with the first one. It's related to what Caleb said. Um, the first issue is that this book, The Shack, presents a negative treatment of scripture, theology, and I think the danger is that it exposes the reader to what I call an unmediated encounter with the living God. Um, and what do I mean by an unmediated encounter? What I mean by that is when you look at the scriptures, God has always used a mediator to speak to humans. In the Old Testament, it was Moses, it was Joshua, it was the priest, it was the prophets, um, it was the written law. Uh, they represented God. They were the mediators of the covenant. Uh, your average Israelite couldn't just barge into the Holy of Holies and talk with God. Um, God's always spoken to us with the mediator. Um, now we have the closed canon of scriptures. We've got the 66 books. And so the, the canon, the closed canon of scripture is where we find God's ultimate and final word spoken to us. And what this book presents is um, an encounter with God in the wilderness, face to face in the shack, almost like this Gnostic unmediated encounter where the scriptures are not given any type of high authority as the final rule. It's more me and God out in the woods, and here's how I'm going to have this unmediated encounter with God without the scriptures. Well, and I think I'd even go a step further saying it's not just that it's unmediated. Um, it's the he embodies God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, uh, two, the two persons of the Trinity that in Scripture are explicitly not embodied, that when we have an embodiment, um, that's always uh, seen as the Son. That's the role of the Son. Um, so if, if he had, I, I think it would be less egregious, and, and I don't use that word lightly, it'd be less egregious if he only had a uh, imaginative conversation with Jesus, because I think right. you could do that because we have Jesus talking uh, more directly in scripture and the gospels. Um, and, and that would not be as big of an issue, but when you have the, the father and the Holy spirit being embodied as, as people and even more so as women, um, which is another discussion altogether, uh, right. that causes a lot of, uh, issues right off the bat in my mind. Yeah. And one of the things that you can really see come through in this, in this book is that he has a, he has a, a basically a disdain or a, a disregard for the institutional church. Um, you know, the, the idea of an institutional church and the scriptures as a final rule of faith, it doesn't seem to be on his radar screen. And I'm going to, we're going to give some quotes from the book. For example, on page 203, uh, Sarayu. I don't even know how you pronounce the name. Sarayu, Sarayu. It's the name for the Holy Spirit. This again, the Holy Spirit's personified as this wispy Asian woman that likes to garden. But uh, on page two hundred three, the Holy Spirit says, "I have a great fondness for uncertainty." Um, that is very much the mantra I think of the emergent church, liberal theology. Uh, we can't be certain. We can't be um, foundational upon absolute truth. And I can't imagine the Holy Spirit of God, who is the spirit of truth that inspired the sacred scriptures, saying things like, I have a great fondness for uncertainty. Well, and an another area um, that it falls short on when you talk about the uncertainty, I think that's directly tied to the uh, imbalanced anthropology that William Young has. He, I, I do think that as, again, as reformed uh, uh, people in our theology, we tend to have an, an overly low view of our anthropology. Um, but as I've uh, studied the scriptures more and developed more in my theology, I've had a higher view of, of man, not, not necessarily like in his capacity um, to do good apart from God, but just in, in, in the value uh, that, that, they have before the living God, but it's, that's always found in their image bearing of God. 
Uh, But what I mean by that specifically, uh, when I say that an overly high view of man and and too high of a view, an imbalanced view of anthropology, um, that was on page 99, where um, uh, when talking with God, and I'll just read it directly, consider our little friend here, she began, most birds were created to fly, being grounded for them is a limitation within their ability to fly, not the other way around. She paused to let Mac think about her statement. You, on the other hand, were created to be loved. So for you to live as if you were unloved is a limitation, not the other way around. And while I understand what he's getting at, I never see it develop beyond um, it all being about man was created to be loved. It's all about man. It's never seems to be um, brought around to um, the glory of God as being the uh, preeminent reason for man's existence. And I, and I do believe that there's uh, uh, a little bit of the glorification of God brought up later uh, in what I felt was kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable scene. Um, right. Uh, we'll get, we'll get yeah. to that. Okay. I'll, I'll let you direct, <laughs> direct yeah. when we get there. Well, one of, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's this whole, whole underlying um, sentiment or this underlying theme of the author of uncertainty. Uh, and that's the whole emergent liberal. Let's just throw these questions out there. Let's throw these statements out there that are unclear or vague and let's struggle with them and let's never really actually give a biblical answer. Um, and so you see that in Rob Bell and others where the questioning is where we come as a group with a reader response and, and determine what truth is. Um, the second area of concern um, and this, you alluded to this earlier, and for lack of a better way to describe it, it I, I feel like it's almost breaking the second commandment um, in the sense that Exodus 24, uh, 20 verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Um, you have this weird personification of God the Father as a large African-American woman named Papa who dances around the kitchen, cooking great food and singing along with jazz music. And the scripture is very clear that God is non-corporeal, however you want to say that. God does not have a body. Uh, the Father is spirit. Uh, Jesus said in John 4, 23 through 24, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeking such people to worship him, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, we also have the whole idea that Jesus is the only visible and physical expression of an invisible God. Uh, Colossians 2, 9, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, and then you've got this Asian wispy woman floating around like the Holy Spirit, who's also um, spirit. And so you've got kind of a very weird trinity. And I know it's an, an allegory, but you've got three persons of the trinity, all three having a body. And we know from scripture that God the Father dwells in unapproachable light as the immortal, invisible God. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, does not have a body. Uh, the only person of the Godhead that has a physical body um, is Jesus. And so it's really weird that, again, this unmediated encounter where Mac is, Mac is really, he's interacting with the triune God in fireside chats where he does not have any fear or trembling. Um, and, and when you look in the Bible and see how people reacted when they came in the presence of, of the Holy God. You think of Isaiah, you know, woe is me, I'm, a, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And when John in Revelation sees Jesus appear before him at the island of Patmos, you know, he falls as though he was a dead man. And so in, in the Bible, God is holy. He's a consuming fire. Those that have an encounter with the living God are usually, you know, unraveling. And so you've got this um, Papa, a woman. You've got Jesus as a carpenter with a flannel shirt that's kind of unimposing. And you've got this wispy Asian woman floating around working in a garden. Um, And then there's another weird incident in the book on page 95 where Papa shows Mac the scars on her wrists, which almost makes it sound like God the Father suffered on the cross 
And why would God the Father have scars on his wrist? It was a very weird, um, not even to just deal with the, the gender issue. We can That's a whole other issue, but just the whole idea of the way he dealt with the, with the Trinity. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really jumped out at me, because at one point, uh, Papa's talking uh, about the Trinity, and Grant, I'll give that somebody uh, will have difficulty understanding the Trinity. We can only um, explain it uh, so well in our limited capacity, but as Papa's uh, describing the Incarnation, he keeps saying, or she, it's, 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 sorry, it's throwing me off, <laughs> uh, they keep saying, when we uh, uh, be, took on flesh, uh, along those lines, basically making it sound like all three persons of the Trinity took on flesh. And, and I think that's a huge issue. And when, uh, in relation to the incarnation, because we're talking about the Trinity, so uh, if you don't mind me talking about the the issue of the incarnation, um, that I think he also has a no, that's, that's erroneous that's view a on. Yeah, on page 108, um, he... Uh, he talks about how uh, rela- a lot of people treat relationships as pa- like as having power, um, and that you can only have really have relationship if you give up power. And basically saying that Jesus gave up power when he stepped out of heaven, and that's why we're able to have relation with relationship with him. Um, when that's not the case, Jesus didn't give up his power, and he didn't give up his authority. You could say that he gave up his glory. I believe that's what Philippians teaches us, that Christ gave up his glory for a, a season of history. But he never gave up his power, and he never gave up his authority. He, he always had those. Right. That's called the kenotic heresy from Philippians 2, the kenosis, where Jesus emptied himself. And you know, liberal theologians look at that word, Jesus emptied himself, and they think he emptied himself of divinity or emptied himself of any type of authority or power um, in the incarnation, which really denies the hypostatic union of Jesus as fully God and fully man in, in one person. So let's talk about a third problem that we have. I mean, there's a lot, we could go on forever about these problems, but in order to kind of get to all of them, uh, the third issue is, and we've talked about this, is really the effeminate nature of God. Um, we know from the Bible, and, we're, and, we're, and let's just make a statement here. We're not being misogynist or sexist when we say this. We're going with revealed truth and how God has revealed himself. And that's, we, we can't define uh, who God is based upon our culture. We have to go by how God himself has chosen to reveal himself. And he's chosen to reveal himself to us as father, masculine. Uh, Christ is the God man. The Holy Spirit is also referred to as a he, uh, not an it, not, not a she, um, and the whole, just the way the Godhead operates in this book is very, very um, effeminate. Uh, Jesus is kind of a touchy-feely hippie. He holds hands with Max as they're gazing up at the stars. I'm not sure if that was the awkward moment that you were talking about in the book. Or um, let, let's let's address the the gender or the effeminate nature of, uh, that's being portrayed in this book about God. Yeah, I think that um, we have to be clear to affirm that when we say that man is created in the image of God, that we do um, say that it's man and woman together. Because there's a lot of people out there who will uh, try to try, like you say, say that we're misogynistic. Um, because uh, especially those of us who um, are are more conservative in our theology, uh, you know, we we affirm that women aren't supposed to serve in uh, pastoral positions. We affirm that you know the that man is the, that men are the head of the, of the household and they have uh, other responsibilities, uh, as far as leadership goes. Um, but when God chooses, because that's, an, that, and that's important, God chooses to reveal himself in a masculine way. Um, that's not something to be taken lightly. And I do think that part of it is the authoritative aspect that exists uh, and, and you know, feel free to to chime in and and help uh, help help clarify what I'm saying if you think I'm if I'm off on this. But at the curse um, after the fall, uh, you know, part of the curse is uh, the the amnesty animosity between uh, the man and the woman. And I think part of God's choice in revealing Himself exclusively in a masculine way is to represent that authoritative position. So when you try to downplay that and make it into an effeminate um, 
pronoun or effeminate personality, I think you're really undoing uh, the authoritative role that God's playing in his creation. And, and you see that come out with the overemphasis on relationship um, between God and man in, in the shack, because the whole thing is just over and over and over again about, um, about relationship and about, uh, about, uh, like I said earlier with the, the overemphasis on love without there being a glorification of God being the preeminent purpose of man and without a uh, submission of man to God's will. Um, I'll, I'll stop and let you comment if there's anything you think that yeah. I need to clarify. Yeah, and I think what you said is really good. And I, and I think, let's get a word of, of sympathy or empathy here. Um, one of the things that happens in the book is that Mac, Mac's father was an alcoholic legalistic elder in his church and physically abused him. Um, so he had a unhealthy relationship with his dad, did not have a positive male influence in his life. And so uh, we've got to be very sensitive to that issue, especially pastorally. You've got a lot of people who do not have good fatherly role models. And so there's been times where I've preached or I've talked or counseled with somebody about God being a good heavenly father. And just the whole idea of the concept of a father um, is foreign to to some people because their father was either abusive or distant. And so that's a reality in our culture. But it doesn't give us permission to reinterpret who God is because people had poor living, uh, literal fathers. And one of the things Papa tells Mac, you know, in the book, she knows he's going to have a hard time relating to, to God as father. So on page 93, she says, for me to appear to you as a woman and suggest that you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors to help you, to help, to help you keep from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. And so I can understand, um, the author's desire to, really deal. I mean, he's, he's, he's trying to be almost, um, I guess a good Christian counselor. I mean, he's dealing with some pretty heavy issues here. You've got a, a man struggling with the death of his daughter by a serial killer. You've got a man who had an abusive, religious, hypocritical father, and he's trying to sort all of these issues out. And that's where we can get empathetic and realize that these are real issues in people's lives. Um, but instead of providing good biblical counsel on how God truly is a father to the fatherless, um, I think the shack comes really short in the mixing of the metaphors and the effeminate nature of of um, portraying God that way. Right. And, and just to just to clarify, when I say there's an overemphasis on relationship, um, what I mean by that is there's an overemphasis on the familial relationship that um, that I see in the book, and it, it it's to the, or it's at the expense rather of God as our Lord first, in order for us to have the familiar relationship with God, first we have to have the, um, that Lordship relationship where we acknowledge him as Lord. Cause even Christ, before he calls the disciples brothers, uh, towards the end of his ministry, um, they first have to come to the acceptance of him as their God and him as right. their Lord and their King. And it's only through that, that they now are called his brothers. And that's a great point. And, and this relates back to a former podcast I did where I was interacting with the corporate view of election. You know, some of these theologians, and maybe more on the liberal bent, they really try to pit God's attribute of love over lordship or holiness or sovereignty. And so one of the things that I think you're, you see a lot, especially in the emergent church and the liberal, you know, liberal theology, is that uh, the chief attribute of God, the only, the highest attribute of God is love to the expense of justice or lordship or authority. And, and so I think there's an overbalance. Um, and I understand what you're saying about relationship. Um, it's good to have a relationship with God, but it's through Christ and it's it's submitting to him as Lord, um, not this unmediated encounter with God as your buddy. Um, and, and this kind of goes, this, this fourth area is kind of similar. The fourth difficulty that we had is it really has a low view of the sovereignty of God and an exalted view of the free will of man. Now, this is where, you know, we as Calvinist or Reformed people are going to have a problem with it. Um, but, you know, you really do not see God's absolute sovereignty in this book. Um, at the beginning of chapter 6, we find this quote, no matter what God's power may be, the first aspect of God is never that of absolute master, the almighty. 
It is that of God who puts himself on our human level and limits himself. That's, to me, heretical, <laughs> personally, that God limits himself and puts himself on our human level. Now, he'd have to unpack what he means by that, but to me, it goes against what Job 42 um, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, and so there's this denial of the sovereignty of God and the elevation of the free will of man almost to the point, I think, of, of heresy. Not just an Arminian view that we would differ with, but almost to a, a heretical view. Yeah, and God is seen and portrayed as being very reactive in the book. Um, I think at one point, uh, I, I couldn't find the, the direct quote, uh, but at one point, God is essentially saying that the things that he's talking about the good and evil, the existence of, of evil in the world and about the, how as humans, we subjectively uh, will call things evil that God will use for good. Um, and he comes really close to almost basically calling, calling things that are evil, good, including like the death of, of the daughter. And it's just like, we, we need to get away from trying to uh, whitewash what happens in history. One of the things I think that he does well is try to point people beyond their own immediate problems. And to his, I want to be sure to give him credit for that because that's something that all Christians can agree with that you, you know, you, you lose a job, the, the, the death of a, of a family member. Um, you know, I mean, all other types of horrible situations that can come up in a lifetime. Um, and we need to look beyond the immediate pain that we're experiencing and realize that God can use that for good. But it, it goes beyond just God using it for good, that he's actually directing history. And I think that that makes us uncomfortable as, as finite beings, but that's what the scriptures reveal, that he's actually directing it. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't remember if you had mentioned uh, Joseph to where he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's not just these passive things that, that right. happen, like, like a hurricane or something like that. It's even being sold into slavery God intended for good, even though the action in and of itself is evil. Right. And that word in Genesis 50, 50, isn't, isn't that God reacted or God saw and adjusted. It's actually God devised and God planned, God ordained. There is almost a, 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 an underlying sentiment of open theism in this book. Um, page 123, um, this is what Mac hears Papa explain to him um, that God was somehow surprised by the sin of Adam and Eve. Quote, we carefully respect your choices, so we work within your systems, even while we seek to free you from them. Creation has been taken down a very different path than we desired. And so um, <laughs> there's this really weird idea that, you know, God responds to our choices. The future's not really what we had planned as the as the Holy Trinity. We're letting you guys as humans have freedom and we're working within your freedom. Um, it's very weird. And then on page 104, um, Jesus is portrayed as a klutz. He drops a large bowl of food on the floor and everyone begins to laugh. And um, it's it's really just really weird. Well, and the amount of laughter that happens in the book um, is a little bit unsettling to me. Uh, it, and I understand that, you know, if, if we lived in a perfect world free of sin, um, that there would be that joy unending and that one day as Christians, we're going to experience in that in the new heavens and new earth. Um, so that I don't have an issue with if you're, if he's trying to communicate joy, but the amount of laughter that was happening in the midst of a fallen world and in a, in a, a fallen, hurtful, painful situation I think it really mitigated the gravity of what's supposed to be happening, that he's having an interaction with the living God. Um, and I think a loss of that gravity uh, uh, plays back into some, so many of the other issues that, that, we're, that we're seeing with the effemination of God and with the, the lack of his sovereignty. Um, but that was one of the things that really disturbed me was that, that it, it was, there, there didn't seem to be too much confrontation um, right. Like we see in the book of Job, when, when things are finally said and done, 
you know, God's response is gird yourself like a man. I will question and you will answer me. Right. Um, it's not a, um, it's not this happy go lucky, uh, good times unending situation. Right. One day it will be closer to that, but the, even then the gravity of being in God's presence is still going to be there. And a perfect example of that from the book on page 92, there's this intimate scene between Papa and Mac where she's begin, she, he, God, God begins to cry and basically says, if you let me, Mac, I'll be the Papa you never had. And then God begins to cry and they, uh, you know, they embrace and it. And it's it deals with the impassibility of God. Does God truly show um, emotions? Does He change? Does He react? But it was really awkward that what you have here is that you've got God crying in front of a human, asking permission to be His father slash mother, and it was just a really weird depiction. Um, let, let's keep moving on for the sake of time. The fifth issue that I have a problem with, and that, and again. Not sure if this was his intention, but there's a very vague presentation of the cross and a lack of clarity in presenting of the gospel. Uh, let me give you a very alarming quote. On page 110, Jesus said, I am the best way any human can relate to Papa and Sayarayu, or whatever her name is. Now, can you picture Jesus saying, I'm the best way? Um, it's a sly way to get around his actual words in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's kind of what you're hearing today. Uh, Jesus is not the only way. He's a good way. He's the best way. I mean, you hear Joel Osteen saying things like that. And so uh, I, I can't imagine Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the best way you can relate to God. How do you yeah, respond I to think, that? Uh, years ago, I remember hearing Paul Washer uh, make a statement that, um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I'm, I'm sure, but saying, if I wanted to be invited on Oprah tomorrow, all I have to do is change one word, and that's the word only, that Jesus is the only way to God, um, because I would be seen as suddenly this this tolerant hero of Christianity who's come and seen the light um, about my intolerance and bigotry and, and everything. And I think um, I think William Young gives license to the reader to take it in that direction. Now I understand, I understand if, if what he's trying to say is that there is a common grace, uh, in all of humanity that is manifested aspects of God in his, in his person, um, in every religion. I, I get, I get that. Um, I, I, and I can, I can even agree with that tepidly, you know, I, I understand what he may be trying to say, but that's not what he's saying. And I actually think that that, uh, I'm not trying to make this a, a, a racial issue when I say this, but I think that's revealed intentionally through, uh, Sarayu being an Asian woman. I think he's intentionally alluding to Eastern, uh, pantheism, uh, and panentheism as, as being a representation of the Holy Spirit's role. And, uh, even Calvin would say that that it can be piously said that God is nature, if, but you'd have to caveat that so much that it's better not to say it at all. But you could say that God is nature if you're saying that nature is the outworking of the mind of God. Um, but that's but Paul or not Paul, but William Young doesn't say it explicitly enough um, in a way that is that is pious, and I think he actually at that point. Um, puts a toe over the line of heresy. Yeah, and there's a statement on page 182. Jesus says this to Mac, quote, those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhist or Mormons, Baptist or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institution. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into my brothers and sisters, into my beloved. What does that mean? What, what does it mean I don't want to make them Christian? That's a very vague statement about what salvation truly is. Uh, this whole, I, I just want to bring you into this transformational relationship where you, you, know, you have this brotherhood of man, uh, very vague on the whole idea of, of Christ being the only way. Again, on page 192, the cross is explained in very fuzzy details. Papa tells Mac, honey, you asked me what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and I listened to me carefully. 
Through his death and resurrection, I am now fully reconciled to the world. Max says, the whole world? You mean those who believe in you, right? And Papa responds, the whole world, Mac. All I'm telling you is that reconciliation is a two-way street. I've done my part totally and completely finally. It's not the nature of love to force a relationship, but it is the nature of love to open the way. Now, again, those of us, at least me personally, who hold to particular redemption, uh, we can argue that issue, but it almost sounds like it's almost sounds like it's leaning towards universalism in a sense. If you, again, it's it's the lack of precision, the lack of clarity on these statements that are uh, specifically Christocentric and specifically um, related to soteriological issues. That's the problem I have with this book is it's, it's, it's being portrayed as a Christian book. And when you look at it, I don't think there's anything really Christian about it. You don't get a clear presentation of the gospel. You don't get a clear presentation of who Christ is. There's not a clear presentation of sin, repentance, the lordship of Christ. I, I don't know if, if you could even say it's a Christian book. Uh, yeah, I think in, in general, I would agree with that um, because, like you said, the gospel presentation is vague at best. And the fact that he's being vague, it's just going back to what you were saying earlier with um, all the different uh, religious groups it's possible that he's saying, and this is where I want to be charitable, it is possible that he's saying that it's not a come and clean yourself up and look like this before you can become a Christian. Um, it's He may be trying to get at a, a more missional mindset, but they're not. He, he's not specific enough. He doesn't unpack that enough to where it can easily be read as, like you said, universalism. And I think that the passage that you just quoted um, uh, pushes me in the direction of not wanting to interpret the previous uh, passage mentioned as being um, more on the more conservative orthodox end of the Christian faith. Right. Well, the sixth difficulty, um, and we kind of alluded to this, it, it may be a, re- a repetition, but it's really a strange way to illustrate the mystery of the Trinity. There, there's some weird theology on page 99 Papa makes this statement, when we three spoke ourselves into human existence as the Son of God, we became fully human. That almost sounds like modalism, or I'm not even sure what that is. We, we spoke ourselves into human existence. Uh, wasn't Jesus the only one that became flesh in the incarnation? Um, and then do we speak, do they speak themselves into existence in the incarnation, the Father and the Son? It's, it's very weird, just the way that they, um, and I understand that he's trying to make the Trinity interact in this loving relationship. I mean, they clean, I mean, there's this overly, they clean up after each other, they do the dishes, they're kissing each other on the cheek. There's this really um, lovey-dovey way that the Trinity interacts and um, this you know, kind of folksy down home, let's garden together, let's listen to jazz together. And I just don't think you can capture the full breadth of the eternal counsel of the Godhood and their infinite love between Father, Son, and Spirit that's always existed in eternity past by bringing it down to such a, almost like a folksy level. Uh, I agree with you completely on that one as well. Um, and, that, and that was actually, I think, the passage that I was alluding to earlier when I said it blurs the distinctives uh, of the Trinity. Um, and yeah, I, don't, I really don't have anything to add at that point. Yeah. And another weird thing on, on page 204, Sarayu, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Sarayu, Sarayu, the Holy Spirit, the Asian woman, sa- tells Mac, my very essence is a verb, not a noun. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> My very essence is a, does that mean the Holy Spirit's not a divine person? It's a force. It's a activity. It's, it's just really weird. Um, and, and I think the thing that we, and the, so those are the six major issues, but I think the, the, the biggest thing that we, maybe an area of concern that we can kind of sum up here is that it is a fictional allegory. And you addressed this at the very beginning, Caleb, but He's, in fact, created an entire book where he, as the author, speaks for God. He creates dialogue of what God supposedly says, how the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit interact. And my question is, do we need another written account of the very words of God? Because it's almost, 
I don't think it's an issue of that he would believe in progressive revelation or, or he's a charismatic. I don't know what he believes, but what we've got here is this whole idea that um, we've got the written word of God in Scripture. God has spoken fully and finally in his Son. It's been inscripturated. It's been canonized. Do we need a human author to come tell us in dialogue, speaking the very words of God? Well, and that really is the, uh, the crux of the issue because there's one there's one last point that I wanted to, to make um, that hasn't been mentioned yet. And uh, it's a quote on page 122. Um, and God says, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. When he says that, he's, he's, t- he's making a, an authoritative statement. Uh, he's making a theological conclusion that he has, and he's making, it, he's making God say it. Um, I, I understand it's a fiction, but he's saying he's trying to, he's trying to communicate uh, a broader truth. Well, that's just an a anti-biblical broader truth. <laughs> it's not a real truth. If you want to call it an alternative truth or whatever, it's not, it's not biblically based. It, it's, it's, it's a well, John- complete obfuscation of God's active wrath and right. God's passive wrath. God's passive wrath is real. We do see that in scripture. But um, I think I think it's Brian Zahn who is is becoming more and more popular as he has had like the monster God debate with uh, Dr. Brown. And that's that's kind of the crux of his issue is he rejects the idea of the active wrath of God. That's his his foundational premise. We see William Paul, uh, William Paul Young say that in this book. And we see that becoming more and more pervasive where Christians are afraid to, to say that God has an active wrath. Yeah, and I listened to, and I can't remember what podcast or what it was on, um, where I listened to William Paul Young, and there was an interview with him, and he he denies propitiation, he denies penal substitution. I mean, John three thirty six, Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Um, yeah, a total denial of of the wrath of God, um, and just weird. Again, instead of relying on scripture for ultimate revelation, Sarayu, I still know how to pronounce, tells Mac on page 195, um, he asked the question, how will I be able to hear the Holy Spirit? Quote, you will learn to hear my thoughts and yours. Uh, Very, very interesting. um, This whole unmediated, don't use scripture, just listen to that still small voice inside you, uh, no, no law of God. We can go on that whole issue. There's a whole section uh, on p- page 203 where Max says, are you saying I don't have to follow the rules? And um, Sarai, you, the Holy Spirit says, yes, and Jesus, you're not under any law. All things are lawful, um, which you know takes Romans 6.14 out of context. Um Page 205, the Holy Spirit, Cyrus you says, that's why you won't find the word responsibility in the scriptures. Responsibility and expectations are the basis of guilt and shame and judgment, and they provide the essential framework that promotes performance as the basis for identity and value. Well, what does that mean? You won't find the word responsibility in scriptures? How do you deal with all the imperative commands, especially the, the pursuit of holiness? I mean, just anything related to um, the holiness of God, the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the consequences of sin, the wrath of God, penal substitution, um, it, all of that seems to be thrown out the window. And I think that it's more than just, hey, I'm, I don't know if, I don't know, I'm not going to impugn his motives, but I can almost imagine that he sat down and said, I'm going to write a cool little allegory that's going to totally transform how people view God in the Bible. Because he's basically deconstructing core Christian doctrines very slyly and sneakily in a, in a well-written, engaging um, novel. Yeah, and when it comes to trying to do that little game that, that so many people try to do, like, oh, you never find this word in the Bible, it's like, well, yeah, because you're talking about an English word. What matters is are the concepts that surround the meaning of that word found there. And like, and, and you just, uh, really nailed it when you said you, there's all these imperatives about holiness in the new Testament alone, not to mention the old Testament, but in the new Testament alone from the words of Christ alone, that it's, it's impossible to come to the conclusion that there's, uh, that there's no law that Christians need to follow at all. 
Um, and and if, if what he's saying when it comes to the whole, and again, I need to stop saying if what he's saying, cause it, as, as you read it, he, he's so vague, he, he doesn't really get himself much, um, much grace in some of these areas. Uh, I would agree with if you're walking in holiness, um, and, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, uh, you will, uh, be, you, you will likely understand in the, in moments of, of decision time, what it is God's will for your life is. I think MacArthur says something to that effect. If you want to know what God's will is, if you're walking in holiness, it's what you want because God is going to be direct. He's already directing the desires of your heart. Um, but I don't think that that's what he means. I think he means in a more mystical self, uh, a, a, a self revelatory way in the sense of the Christian has a, has their own revelation. Well, let's just think about this for a moment. Let's, let's just take some big theological categories and see how he's deconstructed them. This is kind of off the fly here. Um, he has deconstructed the doctrine of the Trinity. He has deconstructed the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the absolute foreknowledge and exhaustive knowledge that God has. Uh, that God has. He has deconstructed the deity of Christ. He has deconstructed the cross and the wrath of God and propitiation. He's deconstructed the role of the law in the life of a Christian. He's deconstructed the need for a written record of God finally um, inscripturated in the Bible. The 66 books is the final authority. And he's deconstructed the need to be involved in a local church, in, in an institutionalized church that's, that's rightfully ordered with, with, with church officers. Almost all of the key areas of doctrine he's deconstructed in this book. So it's dangerous. Um, it is very dangerous, and I'd be curious to see how this movie mainstreams um, some of these. I don't know if these key theological themes are going to come out in the movie the way they did in the book. Um, it's probably going to be even worse and even more innocuous and, and heretical. But Caleb, do you have any final thoughts on the shack uh, before we wrap this up and and, and think about um, uh, kind of bringing this discussion to a close? Uh, the only thing I would say is that if you're going to read it, don't read it devotionally. <laughs> um, there are much better books out there um, that deal with uh, the topics that are more solid, that are going to help you in your Christian walk. Um, if you're a, if you're an, uh, an elder or a, a pastor or a student studying to become a pastor or even a, a lay person in the church who just wants to help uh, be more discerning uh, and you're more mature in your faith, um, I would recommend it as a, as an exercise and practice and to know what's going on out there. Cause it, it does do a good job of bringing these, these issues up and it shows you how they're uh, becoming more pervasive. And I think as you read it with discernment, you'll be like, Oh, I remember hearing um, uh, so-and-so say something along those lines. Um, so that way you can help better counsel people who may be susceptible, who are younger Christians who may be susceptible to false teaching, um, helping guard the church and, and guard the younger Christians uh, from heretical and dangerous ideas. But if you're looking for something that's going to help you in your Christian walk, um, I, I really would not recommend reading the book. I think your, your, your time and efforts are just better spent elsewhere. Well, what, what saddens me is for some reason I'm on outreach magazine or outreach's, um, email list. I need to probably take myself off of, but I got an email, maybe it was last week promoting the movie, the shack and that you could get uh, the promotional materials. And I'm just thinking, we as an evangelical culture are willing to just accept anything these days, um, no matter what. There, there's no discernment in, in these things. And it's just, um, it's sad. And it's going to be amazing to see how many churches rent out a theater to go see The Shack like they did, you know, movies like Passion of the Christ or other things. And, and to me, that's going to be really telling as far as where the discernment is on these pastors and leaders and, and especially, you know, buying out blocks of tickets at a theater to go see a heretical movie. So good word, Caleb. I, I would personally recommend no, but I mean, I think pastors and leaders need to read it to be aware or at least read some reviews or, or you know, if you don't want to read the whole book. But your average, um, you know, church going lay person, um, I, I think it's dangerous um, and I think it's something you need to stay away from. So, Caleb, you have any final words, maybe not related to the shack, just some things that you want to say since it's your first time on the podcast. And um, I really appreciate you being on here today. But any words of encouragement or anything that you want to say as we uh, wind down on this podcast? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Thanks for having me.
Well, thank you for being on our podcast, and you've done such a great job, Caleb. We'll have to have you on future podcasts, and uh, we can talk about some interesting topics. Um, I'm Again, uh, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. If you do have a topic that you want me to discuss or a question, uh, you can go to www.seancole.net. You can find my contact information there. Uh, you can send me a tweet message, a Facebook message, an email. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can also go to iTunes and give us a review and rating. And so we really appreciate you listening to the podcast today. This has been Understanding Christianity. As always, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And until next time, I'll let the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. Thanks for listening.